A couple of years ago, I was helping my son with a project that he had brought home from kindergarten, which was a little time capsule. So it was a shoebox into which they'd put some things that they'd made at school, like a handprint and a writing sample and a drawing and some of these things to kind of document their kindergarten year. And my son was very excited about this project. This was his first exposure to the idea of a time capsule. <laughs> so he brought it home and he was explaining to me, you know, we're going to tape it up and we're going to put it in the closet. And then when I'm a grown-up, I'm going to take it out and I'm going to show you all the things in here again. You know, he was really into this. Um, but there's one part of the time capsule that had come home that was to be completed at home with a parent, which was a little questionnaire. And it just had some basic questions on it to kind of give some sense of who this little person was at this point in their life, like, what's your favorite food, uh, who are your best friends, where have you been on vacation, things like that. And uh, my son was very clear about all of that. He knew exactly what his favorite food was, he knew exactly who his best friends were, where his favorite vacation had been. But there was one question at the end that gave him pause, which was, what is your dream? which is, can be kind of a heavy question for anyone. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't entirely clear to him what that meant. So, you know, thinking about it on a level he might relate to it, we talked about, you know, maybe something he thought might be fun to do one day uh, when he was grown up, something that he imagined, you know, would be interesting to do. So he thought about it for a moment, and then he said very decidedly, I'd like to fly. And, uh, you know, we've, we've done a lot of flying, unfortunately. We have, we have a bi-coastal family, so we do more flying than I would like back and forth. Um, so I didn't think he meant just on an airplane. So I said, well, do you mean like you'd like to be a pilot and fly a plane, or you'd like to be an astronaut and like fly to the moon or something like that? And he said, no, I would like to fly with my body. <laughs> you know, I was like, you go, kid, you know, <laughs> good for you. you know, that's, that's a great dream. So, you know, that was a wonderful moment where we got to talk a little bit about, you know, what would it be like to fly, what it might have feel like, you know, and we put that down on a sheet. Um, but he was at, at this point in his life then, a couple of years ago, where he wasn't entirely sure whether he might or might not be able to fly with his body. You know, the, that separation between imagination and fantasy and, and hard reality that quite, hadn't quite firmed up for him yet. He was at that place in his development. And, you know, who knows? The way things are going, maybe one day he will be able to fly with his body. <laughs> you know, maybe he'll be the one to figure it out. But at this point in my life, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to be stepping out the, the door to go fly with my body anytime soon. Uh, at least not without the help of some serious chemical assistance. <laughs> Maybe some of you have done that. I don't know. <laughs> and the reason I feel confident about that is, you know, partly it's intellectual understanding of the laws of physics and the design of the human body, biology, anatomy, not really designed for it. And partly it's experience, you know, tried a lot of things with this body over the course of several decades, and so far I haven't found flight to be within its capability. So the point of this little opening anecdote is that when we come to practice, it's often with a little bit of that kindergarten mind, 
that hasn't really made uh, the separation between what's, what's fantasy and what's reality when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to our spiritual development. So we have a dream, you know, to be free, uh, to be free from whatever it is for us, you know, from past pain, from present pain, uh, some difficult tendency of the mind or the heart, some difficulty with the body, uh, to be free from stress, anxiety, depression, uh, maybe at this point just to be free from sleepiness <laughs> for a few minutes, to be free from the obsession of the thinking mind. Uh, so we have a dream. But then as we progress in the practice, we mature. And we talk about this. We talk about maturing in the practice, about gaining spiritual maturity, which is unrelated to age. <laughs> but it comes out of understanding and experience. This kind of maturity, kind of spiritual maturity, that's come from repeatedly exploring the nature of the mind and the body and how they work together, exploring this experience that we call me, and coming to know for ourselves more and more clearly what's its potential, what's it capable of, what are its constraints, its limitations, what are the natural laws of being a human being, that we have to work within? What are the parameters there? So just as we can't walk out the front door and say, you know, okay, here we go, I'm off. (laughs) We can't just walk in the front door and check our anxiety and our obsessions and our fears and everything else that we brought with us along with our phones. (laughs) We can't just drop it off at the office. Most of us have probably heard the expression, wherever you go, there you are. So here we are, and here we are. (laughs) We are who we are. And lo and behold, everything that we were carrying around with us before we got here is still there. It came with us. So even if this is your very first retreat, by now you're probably getting a sense of this. This is sometimes said to be our very first insight, the starting point for insight, for understanding which is just simply realizing what a mess we are, (laughs) what a mess the mind is. That our minds do all sorts of things that we don't want them to do, our bodies do all sorts of things that we don't want it to do, and we can't just flip a switch and change that. It doesn't work that way. And many, possibly most of the people who experiment with meditation never get beyond that first insight. You know, almost all of us are going to get that pretty quickly. You know, possibly the very first time that we sit down to try to look into the mind, we're going to see, oh my gosh, that's out of control. But there's few of us that actually get past that barrier and get down to the business of actually doing something about it. So why, why is that? You know, are we smarter than the people that don't come here and do this? Probably not, you know. We may be more more fortunate in some ways, but really it comes down to a question of attitude. How do we respond? How do we receive that information about the chaos in the mind, the uncontrollability of the mind? So our attitude, the attitude that we relate to what we find going on in the mind and the body, is uh, tremendously important in whether or not we make any progress on the spiritual path, whether we even continue with it. 
I don't, um, I don't share what I do here with everyone that I meet in the course of ordinary life. You know, sometimes it's appropriate to, to mention, you know, oh yeah, I do some meditation. <laughs> and other times it's just not, it's not appropriate. But with the people that I do mention to it, more and more, you know, as, as this kind of practice becomes uh, more of a, a readily available, widely available and socially acceptable thing to do, I meet people that will say, oh yeah, I tried a little meditation in my yoga class or, you know, I tried a, an app, you know, just to see how it would work. But most of those people, the next thing they say is then, but my mind was just such a mess, I knew I couldn't do it, so I gave it up. You know, that, that's usually what people will relate. Oh, I wish I could meditate, but I tried it once, and my mind's just such a mess, I know it's not going to work for me. Or some people don't even get that far. They say, oh, yeah, I wish I could meditate, it's something I've always wanted to do, but I'm, you know, I'm so restless, I'm, I'm so squirmy, my mind is such a mess, I just know it wouldn't work for me. Not a helpful attitude. <laughs> it's kind of a non-starter. With that kind of an attitude, we can't get out of the starting gate. We can't even get to the starting gate sometimes because of an unhelpful attitude. So there are lots of things that we talk about here. There's lots of things that we'll learn in a meditation class or from reading or from an app or whatever, wherever we're gathering our information about meditation. And a lot of that is devoted to um, the tools of meditation, the technique, you know, which is something that we're, we're offering here as well, how to use an anchor to ground the attention, different kinds of things that can come up around that and how to adapt the anchor, how to work with the walking meditation, different ways of approaching that, all of these types of tools, how to, how to try to combat sleepiness or restlessness. Um, there's a lot of, of technique. There's a lot of really helpful tools. Uh, so over time, we build a, a meditative toolbox, you know, an array of, of approaches, an array of skillful means that we have at our disposal. And we put a lot of energy into learning all of those. Those are very interesting often. But without a healthy attitude, without a skillful attitude to the practice, none of that is going to be any use. <laughs> we have to uh, put the horse before the cart. Conversely, with a healthy attitude, if we have a positive, uh, productive attitude in the practice, all of that other stuff, all of the nuts and bolts and the details, tend to work themselves out over time, just naturally. So attitude is really important. First and foremost, if we want to get anywhere, we have to come to terms with that conditioned nature of the mind. So we talk a lot here about <clears throat> causes and conditions, the causes and conditions for experience, which has been coming up in some of the groups. So just simply recognizing, as we do here on retreat, how pre-programmed we are, both the body and the mind, by all of the causes and conditions that have brought us to this moment. So if we think about it, just to start off with, we've inherited certain DNA, you know, which programs a lot of how we express ourselves as beings. Our bodies are programmed in certain ways, really starting from conception. Everything that happens to us in utero, birth experience, uh, experiences growing up, how we develop, how we're nourished, how we're cared for, uh, the injuries or illnesses we may have, all of that conditions the body to be in the, the state that it is now. 
how we've used the body, what we've done with it, how we've cared for it or not. <laughs> so all of that gives us a certain range of possibilities now, of things that we can do with the body and things we, that we might be able to develop, how we experience the body. So there's a tremendous amount of programming in the body that shapes how it manifests in this moment's experience, which we are all seeing play out. And it's the same, if not more so, with the mind. You know, there's certain tendency of, tendencies of mind that are, are really pre-programmed. We're born with a certain temperament, with certain... Uh, a certain way of operating in the mind, certain wiring in the mind. And then it goes from there, you know, depending, depending on the experiences that we encounter, what we do with the mind, learning opportunities that we have, how the people around us treat us, all of our experiences growing, maturing, uh, shapes the mind to be in the state that it is now, with the range of possibilities that's open to it now, the things that can be developed now. There's all sorts of things that, that I'd like to do. You know, I'd love to be able to speak Mandarin. <laughs> but, you know, again, I'm not just going to open my mouth and start doing it. The, the necessary causes and conditions aren't there. They haven't arisen yet. I tend to think of the mind as a huge cruise ship, like the, like the Queen Elizabeth. Um, or actually, to be honest, uh, for me, what comes to mind is the love boat. <laughs> I grew up in the, the disco generation. <laughs> so I have that image of, you know, the horn blowing, for those of you that this is a relevant cultural signpost for, you know, the gigantic ship pulling out of Puerto Vallarta into the open ocean, you know. Um, and those ships, that maybe some of you have been on them. I've never been on one of those cruises. We have some friends that do it a lot. But they're like floating cities, you know. They're just gigantic, you know, like floating apartment buildings. And, you know, you don't just turn that kind of a vessel on a dime, right? You don't just put on the turn signal and swing it around. You know, there's, there's some pretty serious constraints on how you can maneuver a ship like that. And we come to see more and more and to respect and to accept that, that we're really like that. You know, we're kind of cruise ships of conditioning. You know, we're, we come in these relatively small packages, but actually there's this huge mass of conditioning uh, that's in there, that's, that we're carrying around with us. And there's a certain range of possibilities that's open to us at any given moment. And we really have no choice but to work within those constraints. You know, we can't change them. Uh, so we can either struggle with them or we can work with them. Those are the only two options. We can't change them. I remember uh, the first time I was given the instruction to uh, identify and name the trains of thought that were arising in my mind, uh, which is something that I've been sharing in some of the groups with some of you, um, and which can be an incredibly useful exercise. It's kind of a variation on the noting tool to identify the, the, the predictable trains of thought, the types of thought, or the, or the particular stories that come over and over and over again into the mind. And the instruction I was given is to... Uh, give a title to each of those those obsessive thought trains, the ones that came over and over again to start to get familiar with them. So I'd have like the work story, the relationship story, uh, the childhood pain story. Um, 
and I was encouraged to get uh, playful with that. So, you know, we might have uh, Pride and Prejudice or <laughs> Death in the Afternoon, Much Ado About Nothing. <laughs> it's good to have a sense of humor about it. But before I actually tried this for myself, I really felt like, how can I possibly get a grip on what's going on in the mind? It's all over the place. You know, there's, there's so, such a great variety of things that arise in the mind. Uh, you know, the beautiful, the ugly, all sorts of things that come up in the mind. It just covers all sorts of territory. And before I looked, it really seemed like that was kind of random or arbitrary, that it was just all over the place, that first insight of just seeing the mind generating all of this material. But I gave it a try. And little by little, I started to see, oh, there actually are patterns. There actually are predictable tendencies. Um, The mind does generate a huge variety of material, but if if we kind of look at the essential ingredients, what's the underlying emotion, what's the, the general type of thought, you know, the activity of mind, or what's the particular topic that it comes back to, the kind of the core topic, that actually it wasn't that broad <laughs> of a variety of things that occupied the majority of the bandwidth. This was really radical to see this. So then that exploration became really fascinating to, to begin to get a grip on what's the conditioning of the mind. Oh, it really always wants to go to planning, or it really always wants to go to remembering, or it really has a tendency to go to fantasy when there's pain in the body. We start to notice these, these, uh, these um, tendencies, the conditioning of the mind, how it responds to different situations. And I go back to this approach um, often in my daily life, in my daily practice when I'm sitting. There are many times when um, I'm really tired, I'm really scattered, maybe there's some big drama going on, and it's hard to just sit still and follow the breath. <laughs> but what I can do in those times is just watch the thoughts coming through. Okay, there's a planning one, there's another planning one, <laughs> there's a worrying one, there's another planning one. You know? Or just seeing what it is. And there's a certain um, comfort, a certain refuge, and just being able to connect with that clear seeing that, oh, okay, it is lawful. There's there's a method to all the madness going on there. It is the mind playing out according to some understandable uh, patterns. So for many of us, this is the the second insight that we tend to get. That yes, there is chaos in the mind, but there's a a rhyme and a reason to it. (laughs) It's not totally arbitrary chaos. It's chaos that's running along certain predictable patterns that have been conditioned into us by everything that's come before, both things that we've had control over and many things that we have had no control over. Some of you were reporting today starting to see to see this in our practice. You know, we, if we look, we start to notice as the days pass that there are these predictable places that the mind goes to or these particular styles of thought that the mind goes to over and over again that are like right up there at the top of the playlist. You know, they just come up over and over and over again. And it's really helpful to get a sense of clarity around that. The more that we start to see what the mind tends to get up to, the more familiar and the more comfortable we can get with our obsessive habits. The less freaked out 
we start to be by them. Like, oh, okay, there's that, you know, painful obsessive thought again. You know, it's just that thing coming again. Or there's that obsessive, you know, craving, that thing that I always think I want again. You know, it doesn't start to be, it starts to be not such a big deal. It's just that thing that the mind does happening again. So it's not necessary that we change all of that craziness in the mind. (laughs) It's not actually necessary that we change the conditioning in order for this practice to work. That just in the, the increasing familiarity, the increasing comfort level, the increasing equanimity around those habitual patterns of mind, that we can find freedom just through simply not identifying with them so strongly, not taking them so personally, not making such a big deal out of them. You know, it's a great relief to just be able to sit back and say, oh yeah, remembering again, or obsessing again, or whatever we're doing. Just that. A number of you have been describing this kind of shift today in the groups. Some of you that have been on retreat a number of times, been practicing for a little while, there are a few of you saying, you know, the same thing that comes up at the beginning of the retreat is coming up again. You know, I'm just falling asleep all day, or I'm going to that, that thing again that I always think about. But somehow it's a little bit different this time. There's, there's not the anxiety. <laughs> there's not the frustration. There's not the, the disappointment around it. It's just doing what it's doing, and it doesn't seem like such a big deal. And just that, even in just that, there's a tremendous amount of freedom. So we start to see that uh, it's not about changing what's going on, but it's about changing the relationship to what's going on. There's no longer the expectation after, after we've done this for a while that things are just going to magically shift because we've walked through the door of IMS or a meditation center and we're now meditating, you know, we're now on retreat and that somehow that just changes everything magically. And then we start to see that there's... Uh, there's a methodology, and if we, if we do the practice, then things will change. <clears throat> this is part of the maturing of the practice. And it just comes naturally. It's really a law of human nature. This is one of the things um, that we come to have confidence in as we continue our practice, finding refuge in the Dharma, finding refuge in the practice. That if we just do our best, little by little, the ship will start to turn. This is a, a famous poem that you may have heard from uh, Rumi, a famous Persian poet called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So it can actually be a huge relief to begin to relate to experience in this way. There's just causes and conditions playing out in the mind and the body. We don't have to take it all so personally. 
You don't have to take it all so seriously. We're not the ones making it all happen. It's not all on our shoulders, which we start to see, you know, as the days pass here. That there's so much of what arises in our experience that is beyond our control. It's the causes and experiences playing out in the present moment. Which, really, if we think about it, is obvious. If we had control, if we were in control of all of this, we would probably be having a different experience most of the time. You know? did, did anybody order you know, unrelenting sleepy, sleepiness for the first couple of days of retreat? Was that what anybody requested on their, you know, their sign-off sheet? You know, or, that, or obsessive thinking? Did anybody come into retreat thinking, oh, yeah, I really want to just be completely obsessed with a painful thought train for the first couple of days? You know? <laughs> What comes, comes, based on causes and conditions, based on what has gone in, based on what's formed us in this moment, then out comes the experience. It's not that we don't have any control over it. I think of it more as we have influence. We have some influence over our experience. But control, very quickly we, we, we see that it's just not so. So hopefully, as, as we get some sense of that, we start to have a sense of humor about all this. Humor is really important in this practice. Um, if we can't laugh at what's going on, this, this path is going to be very long and very grim. Because <laughs> we can either see it as a tragedy or we can see it as a comedy. I recommend the comedy. <laughs> it's, it's much more supportive to just hanging in there and being able to do this. I remember there was a point in my practice where I was starting to see uh, this conditioning of experience, the conditioned nature of experience, how um, you know, there'd be some maybe painful sensation in the body and it would tend to give rise to certain kinds of thoughts, certain kinds of emotions, like very predictably, or a certain thought would arise in the mind, a certain type of thought, maybe a particular memory or something, and it would very predictably give rise to, again, to certain emotions, certain manifestation in the body, so this, this conditioned aspect of the experience was really becoming clear to me. Um, and the time I was, I was um, practicing with one of my Burmese teachers, uh, who bore a striking resemblance to Yoda, <laughs> these big ears, <laughs> very small, very wrinkled, <laughs> um, and usually very, I wouldn't say serious, but just kind of like unresponsive. You know, you tend to just kind of sit there with a blank face and listen to what I had to say and then ring the bell and tell me to keep going, you know. Um, but I came in one day and I was, I was reporting, seeing all this, this, these chains of conditions, one thing leading to another, leading to another, you know, playing out in my experience. And he smiled, which I don't think I'd ever seen before. And he, he gave me a little pop quiz, you know. He was like, uh, why are you experiencing that knee pain? And I thought about it for a minute for a few seconds, of the causes and conditions. And he laughed. <laughs> he said, that's right. And he said, why are you thinking about your mother incessantly? <laughs> or something like that. I was like, causes and conditions. You know? And then we both laughed. You know? And then he went on like this for a while. Why are you experiencing this? Why are you experiencing that? And it was just so clear in that, that space that I was in. You know, it's, it's all just causes and conditions playing out. You know, it's not me. I'm not doing it. It's just the laws of nature manifesting. And then he rang the bell and told me to continue. <laughs> but one of the things that attracted me to this practice was that the people that I knew, I was quite young when I came to this practice, the people that I knew that I met that were 
a little bit older and have been at it for a while, um, they seem to laugh a lot and laugh at themselves a lot and just be very light about their lives and you know, their difficulties and their neuroses. Um, and I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to have some of that. And I find as I go along, I do find, you know, it's still often a mess in there. There's still a lot of conditioning. You know, some of it has kind of worked itself out, but there's still a lot of things in there that are deep conditioning that are unhelpful, unskillful. They continue to play themselves out. Um, But I laugh about it a lot more, and I do feel lighter about it. And that's one aspect of freedom. The mind really... You know, it's just hilarious. I'm sure at this point in the retreat, you've seen your mind do something just completely absurd. You know, something that makes no sense. It's so obviously unhelpful, unskillful, or just weird. You know, the the mind. Uh, you know, I think Joseph Goldstein says the mind has no shame. <laughs> you know, it will just do anything that it thinks might keep us entertained, keep us occupied. You know, it's the mind. It's trying to help, but it really often doesn't have such a good idea what's really going to be useful for us. <laughs> so it's good to laugh, and it's good to be light about it, because the truth is that um, those really deep, what we call karmic knots, kind of the things that really got in there early in our lives, that really got in there powerfully in our lives, that are sources of suffering those are going to be with us for a while. It takes a long time to untangle those things. There may be things um, in our conditioning that are more superficial that might start to release and change very quickly in practice, which we often experience, which is wonderful. But there's probably things in there that are, are very deep in, that are painful, and those are going to be with us for a long time. Those are our good friends on the path. I remember hearing from someone who had attended another retreat center um, that the teacher there had put up on the door of the room uh, where she had practice discussions with the students. She'd put up a little, like an index card that said, it takes as long as it takes. (laughs) So you would see it just when you came in the room. And I think about that a lot. It takes as long as it takes. So patience. Patience is another aspect of having a supportive attitude and practice. Practice is just like anything else in life. It follows the same laws of nature as as any other activity or pursuit. So we will get out of it what we put into it. It's, It's that simple. It's the same as anything else. We want to learn a new language or we want to learn to play an instrument or or anything, anything that we want to learn, right? We're going to expect to put a certain amount, a certain investment of time, effort, resources into becoming proficient in that. And it's exactly the same with spiritual practice. We get out of it what we put into it. So if we put in a little time and effort, we'll get a little bit out. We put in more time and effort, we'll get more of it out. We put in a lot of time and effort, we'll get a lot more out of it. And it's up to each of us to decide how much we want to devote at any given time to our spiritual practice. For some of us, it may be more of a casual thing. For some of us, it may be more of a serious, lifelong pursuit. But either way, we have to accept that there's no free lunch. You don't get something for nothing. It's not realistic to think that one retreat, (laughs) a few retreats, a few years of retreat, a few decades of retreat (laughs) are going to unravel you know, all of the unwholesome conditioning that's in there. There's a lot to to go through. 
it's an ongoing process. So it's helpful to take the long view. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's an ongoing discovery, an ongoing evolution. So can we be, uh, can we find joy? Can we find a sense of gratitude in just being able to take the next breath, the next step, the next thought, the next emotion? There's a story from the commentaries about a monk called Nangala, who had been a very poor agricultural laborer. So he didn't actually own any land. He spent his days working in other people's fields from sunrise to sunset, day after day, no days off during the the agricultural season, um, doing this very hard physical labor and earning really just enough to get by the subsistence living. And one day he was at work in a field with his heavy plow and his tattered clothes, and a monk came walking by, one of the disciples of the Buddha, who saw him there working away in the field. And the monk came over to him, engaged him in a little conversation, and suggested, hey, why don't you come along with me to the monastery and try being a monk? And Nangala hadn't had any contact with Uh, the spiritual community before. He really had no idea what was involved in ordaining. Um, But he looked at the monk, and the monk looked pretty happy, and he looked pretty (laughs) well-fed. So he thought, well, you know, it can't be any worse than what I'm doing now, so I'll give it a try. So he followed along after the monk, and uh, when he got to the monastery, he was ordained. And um, his preceptor, the senior monk who ordained him, Uh, when he gave him the precept to give up worldly possessions, which is part of being in the monastic order, uh, he he told him to take his his few clothes and his plow, which he brought along with him, his only possessions, and put them outside the monastery gate someplace. That's a traditional way of of just leaving your things, and they're kind of free for whoever wants to to pick them up because you're done with them. Um, so Nangala went outside the monastery and looked around, and, and there was an old tree a little distance from the monastery that had a hollow in it that had rotted out. So he took his plow and his clothes, and he stuck them in the tree and went back to the monastery. And for a while, the venerable Nangala, now ordained as a monk, uh, was quite content. He was eating better. He was sleeping better. Um, he was being treated better than he more normally was. He enjoyed the the quiet and the ease of just being able to sit around all day, a lot of the day. But after a while, he got bored. He did start to get quieter, and difficult mental states and mental and thoughts started to arise. And one day he thought, well, this has been nice, but I think I'm done. (laughs) Some of you might be able to relate to that. And he started to make his way out of the monastery through the gate. But as he was leaving, he caught a glimpse of his things, his plow and his old dirty clothes that he left in the tree there. They were still kind of hidden away there. And when he saw those, he remembered the misery and the hardship of his former life. And he lost all desire to leave the monastery and turned around and went back and gave it another shot. And in fact, he was filled with a a renewed sense of of purpose to really persevere and to realize, you know, was it possible for him to feel some of that that peace and that freedom that that some of the monks around him clearly seemed to have. 
But he still didn't have an easy time of it at the monastery. He would often get bored. He would often feel frustrated. Uh, But now, whenever that happened, he would go outside the monastery gates and go to see the tree where his old things were stashed away and reflect on the misery of his former life. And that would give him the energy and the inspiration to carry on a little bit longer. And it's said that for a long time he would go out to his tree every few days, over and over again, as if he were going for interviews with a teacher, which didn't go unnoticed by the other monks at the monastery. And when they asked him, he would say, I need to go and visit my teacher. For many years, his fellow monks teased him about this, so they were quite surprised when one day he suddenly stopped visiting the tree. And they couldn't understand why there had been this sudden change in his routine. So when the, the next time that the Buddha came around, they asked him about this. You know, what's up with Venerable Nangala? And the Buddha said, it's very simple. Venerable Nangala has become one of the arahants, fully enlightened being. And he lived happily ever after. <laughs> As these stories often end. <laughs> And so some of us, you know, we have those teachers. You know, we have the, the memories of past pain, difficult things that are still in there that really are, are, are great teachers for us. They're our source of inspiration, our source of motivation to remind us why we're doing this. And we may need to come back to them over and over and over again, you know, as we work our way through them, as, as we untangle those tangles in the heart and mind. I really love some of the old stories because, um, you know, in some ways they are so fresh and relatable. A lot of us can relate to, you know, the Venerable Nangala's experience, even though it's set in this kind of arcane, ancient world. Those those same feelings are, are very universal. When I first started to hear these stories that end with the, uh, you know, the happy enlightenment ending, <laughs> you know, I used to think, all right, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know? Um, you know, I did have a lot of superficial benefits, a lot of, of quick benefits from practice, which hopefully many of you had. You know, I, I, I did have less stress. You know, I did start to be able to be a little bit more relaxed. I w- was getting along with people better. You know, there were, there were um, wonderful benefits that came early in practice. Um, but when the teachers started talking about freedom and liberation and enlightenment, um, they, I, I would really just disconnect. You know, that didn't—that wasn't relatable for me. That didn't make any sense to me. I thought that those teachings were just kind of like the carrot on the stick. You know, to kind of get us to keep going. Oh yeah, and if you keep doing this for a long time, you get enlightened. That kind of thing, which is very natural. A lot of us have that reaction because um, those kinds of ideas are very foreign in our culture. You know, if you go to Asia, there's a much different relationship to those teachings. But here, those are very foreign ideas. We tend to be skeptical. And we may encounter not just those teachings, but, but other aspects of the teachings as we go along that are really just hard to swallow. <laughs> they don't make a lot of sense. We don't have faith in those teachings. They go against ideas that we have or intuitions or they're just confusing or strange. But it's important to hold those doubts carefully, skillfully, a little bit lightly. So again, this is a place where skillful attitude is really helpful. Um, 
because this is an area where a lot of people can also get hung up. You know, maybe we've been going along in our practice for a while and we just can't figure out what the teachers are talking about when they talk about no self. Like, what the heck is no self? <laughs> you know, and we just can't wrap our minds around it and make it make intellectual sense. So we just decide, okay, this isn't for me. I'm going to go try something else, yoga, you know, tantric drumming, whatever. You know? So we can hit a stumbling block if we come up against a teaching that doesn't make total sense to us, um, which can be another place where we, we drop away from the practice and we don't follow it through to see if we can figure out for ourselves what is no self. <laughs> so I find it really helpful to make a distinction between unproductive doubt and healthy skepticism. Because the Buddha was actually a big fan of healthy skepticism. He talked about this a lot with different kinds of people in different contexts. So he had multiple conversations um, with people in in the recorded teachings, uh, with people who had doubts on a whole range of topics. People would come and ask him all sorts of things about, you know, metaphysics, uh, about the nature of the universe, the nature of the soul, uh, the nature of individual being, all sorts of things. People would come and ask him. And the Buddha would always encourage people to find out for yourself, look for yourself. Ehi pasiko is the, the Pali phrase that shows up again and again. Ehi pasiko, look and see. And it's said that one of the virtues of the Dhamma, of the Dharma, of these teachings, of this practice, is that it invites investigation. There's like kind of a traditional list of what are the good things about the Dharma, and that's one of them. It invites investigation, which I find so interesting. It doesn't say, you know, because they're absolutely true and take my word for it. (laughs) It says they invite investigation. They're offered in such a way that they give us the tools, they give us the start that we need, um, the information that we need to look for ourselves. But it's then up to us to come to our own conclusions, to collect our own data which in the end is all that really matters. You know, no, somebody else's enlightenment is not going to do us any good. You know, somebody else's freedom is not going to do us any good. Uh, we each have to, you know, in the limit, we each have to sit down and do this practice for ourselves to get the benefit for ourselves. One of our teachers famously said, uh, the Buddha solved his problem. Now you have to solve your problem. <laughs> and that's what we're here doing. You know, so the, the Buddha really encouraged this attitude of uh, healthy skepticism, which is very different from blind faith, uh, which, again, is very attractive to many of us as Westerners. So we might call it an attitude of uh, open-minded skepticism or skeptical open-mindedness, either way. But again, kind of the middle path in relating to the teachings and the promise of the teachings. So not to be so open-minded that all of the ideas, all beliefs seem the same to us. And we can't discriminate in a, in a healthy way what's wholesome, what's helpful, and what's not. But not to be so skeptical that we're not open to receiving new information, not open to making adjustments in our ideas and our views when the evidence on the ground contradicts them. So we come into the retreat with certain ideas about ourselves, about the Dharma, about the practice. And that's kind of our working hypothesis. That's the starting point for the work that we do here. And we go along for a while and we find that there's more to it than what we thought. So can we be open to taking in that new information, to adapting 
our attitude? Can we be willing to let go of ideas that we find are not actually accurate after all? The path of practice, uh, if we keep at it, uh, is one of being continuously proven wrong. Continuously proven wrong. It's it's an exercise in constant humiliation. (laughs) Not constant, but for a while often. I remember coming out of my first retreat and thinking, oh yeah, there's this thing, I really get this now. You know, I've, I've really got this one thing. And then coming on my next retreat and seeing, oh, actually, no, it's, it's like this. See, this is how it actually is. <laughs> and then coming to my next retreat and seeing, oh, no, actually, you know, it's kind of like that. <laughs> and if we keep at this for long enough, you know, we start to get, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot about the human heart, a lot about the human mind. It's a very complicated system, and there's, it's just going to be a long time before we've really got it. So being open to learning, that quality of mind is what um, we call faith in this tradition. So not blind faith, you know, that we should just accept something de facto, you know, because whoever's sitting up here or this guy said so, but the faith that trusts experience, trusts the Dhamma in that deeper sense of the truth of the moment, trusts the reality that's right there in front of us. And that's often a leap of faith. There's so many other things that we could be doing with the mind, so many other thought worlds we could be constructing and inhabiting that are so much more exciting than actually being here in the present moment. So every moment is an act of faith, of recommitting to um, the trust that this is worth doing again for this breath, again for this step, again for this thought. If we don't have faith that this moment is enough, just as it is, it's going to be hard to really fully connect. The mind will get caught up in some kind of struggle, some kind of manipulation uh, with what's happening. But as we go deeper in practice, we are able more and more to trust the present moment, that it has what it need, we need, that we need to remind ourselves. So faith isn't uh, a commitment that we make once and then we're done. You know, kind of like a relationship or uh, a cause or anything that we commit ourselves to. It's not that just that we decide up front, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and then it's settled you know, for the rest of the endeavor. It's something that we have to keep recommitting to. And this practice is the same. We have to keep recommitting moment by moment. I'm willing to do this again and again and again. I'm willing to show up again over and over again. I'll just end with this poem from Wendell Berry called What We Need Is Here. Geese appear high over us, pass and the sky closes. Abandon as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. What we need is here, and we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and an eye clear. What we need is here. Let's sit for a moment.
geese appear high over us, pass and the sky closes. Abandon as in love or sleep holds them to their way. Clear in the ancient faith, what we need is here. And we pray not for new heaven or earth, but to be quiet in heart and an eye clear. What we need is here. There's time for walking, and we encourage you to come and join us for chanting and a short sit to end the day together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.